Drive Time on RT Radio 1, sponsored by Zurich. Protect your family's future with life cover from Zurich. Talk to a financial broker to find out more. Now, at least 11 people have died following one of the biggest aerial assaults on Ukraine since the start of the war. Russia launched 81 missiles at Ukrainian infrastructure across the country, including six ballistic missiles that eluded Kiev's air defences. The Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in southeastern Ukraine has now been reconnected to Ukraine's energy grid after it lost power overnight due to the strikes. With more on this, we're joined now on the line from Ukraine by Siobhan O'Grady, who's a foreign correspondent for the Washington Post and thank you for joining us Siobhan this evening. Uh, Russia have claimed responsibility for these strikes which they say is in retaliation. Uh, retaliation for what do we know Siobhan? I don't think that we can say exactly. This is the kind of rhetoric that we hear a lot from Russia. Um, and as I've spoken to Russians throughout the war, many of them see this as a civil conflict, which is completely contrary to how Ukrainians and most of the world sees it um, as an invasion of sovereign territory by Russia into Ukraine. Um, so, you know, these kinds of attacks had been happening consistently throughout the winter, targeting the energy infrastructure in particular. Um, starting late last year, around November, Russia was launching these kinds of assaults basically every week, and there were a lot of power outages. Uh, people were suffering with uh, without heat during the coldest months. They, the Russians said that this was, uh, you know, an attempt to weaken Ukraine on the battlefield, but Ukraine, you know, rightly also <laughs> replied that this was mainly um, civilians who were suffering and not soldiers. So um, it it hasn't been an unusual um, occurrence, but it had been several weeks since uh, since something like this had happened. And the scale of today's attack was enormous. Um, I woke up this morning in Kiev to an explosion, uh, and we soon learned that um, there had been explosions all across the country in the early morning hours. And as you said, um, you know, many several civilians have been killed, and uh, it definitely put people on edge after a relatively quiet couple of weeks in Kiev, at least. Is it understood why or how the missiles evaded Ukraine's defense system? Yes. So the the kind of um, missile, well, first of all, there were just simply so many that were sent at the same time, um, which makes it really complicated to try to intercept all of them at once. And Ukraine has been asking for the entire course of the war for a greater air defense system um, from the United States and other allies to try to be able to stop some of these missiles that are not detectable. So um, there's a certain kind that was sent today, a hypersonic missile. Um, they sent six of them today, which I believe is the largest number to be sent at once. Those were six of the 81 that um, that were sent in total. And those uh, are simply undetectable by the and unstoppable by the Ukrainian uh, air defense. And so it's the same kind of missile. Uh, luckily, today, we didn't see this kind of scale of death and destruction, but it is one of those missiles that the Ukrainians say struck uh, the residential apartment building in the city of Dnipro in January when dozens of people were killed and an entire section of an apartment building was literally eviscerated. It's an enormously powerful weapon um, and with little to no warning, there's not much that Ukraine can do to stop them once they've been launched. Um, you mentioned the scale of the attack as well, 81 missiles. Was it, was it across the country? Were there any particular cities or areas targeted? Yeah, I mean, it was basically every major city. Um, we believe that uh, they targeted 10 regions. And interestingly, actually, one of the deadliest strikes that seems to have happened in the west of the country, which is usually considered a pretty safe haven. Um, so that was in Lviv region where several people were killed, um, apparently in their homes due to a strike that either hit or struck nearby residential area. 
Um, in Kyiv, we know that at least two people were wounded this morning, um, and we know that attacks also hit areas like Kherson, the city that was liberated by the Ukrainians late last year, but that continues to come under regular Russian attack and that Russia still considers to be part of itself because they held um, an illegal referendum there um, shortly before they lost control of the territory. Um, we also know that I believe 15 uh, missiles were targeting the city of Kharkiv today, which is Ukraine's second city. So pretty much any city you name um, came under attack today. And as you mentioned, the the nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia mm. was temporarily disconnected from the grid, which, um, you know, the international community is very worried about that plant um, and some kind of disaster occurring. It's been a point of concern for many months and is currently under Russian control. So luckily it was it was reconnected and there was no major emergency there. But um, as the chief of the IAEA said today, you know, this just simply can't go on. It's the sixth time um, this year that the plant or in the past year that the plant has been disconnected and it is Europe's largest nuclear power plant. And of course, then all this is against the backdrop of the continuing battle for Bakhmut. Uh, we were talking about this again on the show yesterday, and it's it's interesting every time we speak to somebody, there's a sense that it's about to fall, and, and still it stands, uh, still Ukraine holds the city. It's been going on for seven months, that battle. Uh, do you have the latest information as to what the situation is there? Yes. So, um, as you said, the fight is definitely still going on. And despite, you know, foreign, um, including, you know, European and other Western intelligence reports that um, Bakhmut could fall at any time, Ukraine is insisting that it will not back down. I think at this point, the city has become um, so symbolic to the Ukrainian forces. There have been major losses on both sides, um, but the Ukrainians don't seem willing whatsoever to back off. And I think that they fear it could be um, bad for morale and both national morale and military morale um, at this time to to try to back down. Although the city is in fact of pretty little strategic importance, um, you know the Ukrainians say that the city that Russia gaining control of the city would give them a, a footstep toward other towns in the east, but it's still quite far um, down very fortified roads from those areas, and I. We don't have any reason to believe that it would make a major difference at this time, but you can understand that Ukraine doesn't want to cede any territory that it currently controls, no matter how fragilely to Russia. And I believe that's part of what is inspiring them to continue um, holding on to it. At the same time, uh, they're facing some very irregular fighting there. They have um, the professional Russian army. They also have Wagner mercenaries, um, some who are trained and some who were, were recruited from prisons and basically thrown to the front line. I spoke to one soldier, one Ukrainian soldier a few days ago who was just back from the front right outside of Bakhmut, and he, he said that the Wagner guys were literally being thrown like meat toward the battle um, and that there were waves of them coming each day, that it started in the morning and that they kind of tried to wear down Ukrainian forces by sending in their weaker forces in the morning and then by evening was when they sent in more experienced fighters um, at a time when they thought the Ukrainians might be more tired. And, and is there any sense, Siobhan, as to how long Russia c can continue with that strategy? Uh, again, we've heard so much about in the last couple of months the sense of, of, of really human cannon fodder, for want of a better way of putting it, uh, the, the Wagner group being thrown at the Ukrainian forces to, to, to try and push them back. Yeah, I think... As far as we know right now, they do still have, you know, men to spare, it would seem, but I think it's not at the same level that they did at the beginning of um, the battle for Bakhmut. And I think this has definitely dragged on a lot longer than either side would have liked. Um, but we do think we see from the Russian side that it's also become a very large 
um, point of morale for them as well. And I think considering how many resources and how many people have been wounded and killed fighting for Bakhmut, they also are not really willing to give up. Um, and the sheer level of destruction that has been leveled in the city, I mean, whoever ends up controlling it in the end will not be controlling very much at all. Mm. I remember talking to Ukrainian military officials last summer when I spent a uh, significant time in that region and was in Bakhmut even. And they they said to me that um, Russia doesn't control a city until it destroys it. And Bakhmut is a really good example of that, that even if they are victorious in the end, pretty much every building has been leveled. Almost no one is left there. There's no working infrastructure. So um, it won't be anything more than a base to push forward into the next um, into the next towns. Because the last town taken by Russia um, was Solidar, I believe, and uh, the, the Battle of Solidar was not not a, as long running by any means as the Battle of Bakhmut, but that town was completely devastated. You saw some of what was left. I didn't go into Solidar myself at that time, but I mean, you can see that there's just barely anything left, as you said. Uh, and this is the same theme that we hear, you know, in almost every town that Russia's controlled. I spent uh, time in January driving along Kherson in the Kherson region that had been liberated. And these areas had been controlled by Russia throughout um, the war until they were liberated at the end of last year. And I've never seen such a scale of destruction. I mean, some of the villages just barely exist anymore. Um, and they continue to get hammered from across the other side of the river. So, you know, damaging infrastructure or having um, civilians be killed in their own homes doesn't seem to be a matter of concern at all for the Russian forces. They're going to keep pushing ahead. Um, and especially those who had no choice to fight but were recruited from prison, if they turn around or try to, you know, see in any way, um, you know, we hear that they are probably just facing execution by their own comrades behind them. So they don't really have any choice but to continue fighting. Just finally, then, um, uh, one of the contributors we were speaking to on the show yesterday was saying that one of the reasons Ukraine might be um, holding out in Bakhmut to the extent that they are, aside from the, the moral victory um, that they're, they're or they're perhaps trying to rob the Russians of, is also that it's 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 sucking in so many Russian resources into that town that it's in a way protecting other areas in the country and also giving Ukraine perhaps a chance to launch counteroffenses elsewhere, as, as we've seen in, at other stages in the war. Do you have? Have any sense that they're planning counteroffenses anywhere else? The, the Ukrainians. I think it's definitely true that it's sucking um, Russian resources, it, but at, at the same time, it is also sucking a lot of Ukrainian resources, and that's a mm. problem um, as the fight continues. That a lot of Ukrainian, there are a lot of Ukrainian casualties as well. Um, and of course, you know, the men that I have spoken to who are fighting in the area are running out of ammunition and a lot of them seem quite scared um, because they don't actually have enough weapons left to continue at the same level of fighting. And they're pleading for more arms to come faster. You know, both sides are running out of ammunition. So at a certain point, things might slow down. Um, but it is okay. true. I think that we often don't know what's happening and anything could be a distraction technique like we've seen in the past. Siobhan O'Grady, foreign correspondent for the Washington Post, thank you so much for joining us this evening. We'll take a break. 